0: Welcome to the Cybersecurity Weekly Podcast. I'm Jane Lowe podcasting from Singapore today. And with us today, we are very privileged to have Dr. Sarah Pierce, who is the SKA, which is the Square Kilometer Array Low Telescope Director joining us from Australia and she will be sharing with us the latest developments uh, with the SKA Observatory which is an intergovernmental radio telescope project that was launched uh, officially just quite recently last year. Thank you Dr. Pierce, for joining us in the podcast today. Thank you, I'm very happy to be here and thanks for the invitation. So uh, for our listeners who are, you know, familiar with cosmic explorations. We have heard of the famous Hubble Telescope and Observatory. And there are also a lot of others around the world um, at the South Pole in South America, South Africa, and even in Australia, right? So the question for our audience would be, you know, why another one? And what are some of the goals and science drivers that set the uh, SKA Telescope project apart from these?
1: Yeah, so what we're doing is we're an international collaboration, as you mentioned, an intergovernmental organisation, which is a a collaboration between 16 different countries, and we are looking to build the next two largest radio telescopes in the world. Um, Now, of course, you know, depending on the size of your telescope, you can see different things. And with these next two radio telescopes, we will be able to... um, Make detections and see things that haven't been possible with any previous radio telescope. A good example is what we call the cosmic dawn. So, the telescope we're building in Australia, in particular, will be able to look back to the time not long after the Big Bang, a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, when the very first stars and galaxies started to shine. And we hope for the very first time to be able to map what the universe looked like at that stage. So so it's to be able to address these really, you know, exciting cutting-edge challenges in astronomy that we need to build new
0: telescopes. And, and I understand also other questions about, you know, how the universe became magnetic. And I, I think these are quite exciting uh, questions. Um, So tell us a bit about the history. Um, I understand that the construction was kicked off Middle of last year, and but there had been many developments leading up to that milestone, um, including I believe there was an initial idea that I understand was conceived back in the 1990s and been worked on since, and there's also what uh, we understand to be the SKA Pathfinder and the precursor radio telescopes already operating. So. Tell us about all the history, the initial concept, and also the work behind it and how it has evolved over time. Yeah, I'm very happy to. As you say, the
1: SKA has come from an idea that was first proposed in the 1990s um, to build a large-scale next-generation radio telescope that would, in principle, have a square kilometre of collecting area. Well, the telescopes we've ended up with won't quite have that, although we won't be too far off. Um, And so for more than 10 years now, um, people have been working on the design of the SKA, and what we call the pre-construction phase. Um, And there's been teams from all over the world bringing their expertise to that, whether it's in digital signal processing or software development or front-end engineering. But as you say, very excitingly, you know, last year, and then, Finally, the decision was taken and the designs were in place and the funding was in place sufficiently to allow the decision to be taken to say, yeah, we're in a position now to start construction of the SKA. So the SKA will will build two telescopes, one in Australia and one in South Africa. And um, so what we're doing at the moment is we are letting some of the contracts and um, in the first case, um, mainly for infrastructure, so for building roads and foundations and things like this, but also sort of more complicated contracts around things like software and computing. Um, so we're letting those contracts now and then we hope late. Well, later this year, within the next few months, we will actually start work on the sites and um, to build the SKA. But as you say. There are actually also already telescopes on both of the sites where the SKA will be built. And in Australia, we have two major telescopes on the site where the SKA will be. Um, The Australian Square Kilometre Pathfinder, as you say, which belongs to CSIRO, um, Australia's National Science Agency. And that's a telescope of 36 dishes, which is doing fantastic work, um, mapping the sky really quickly, and detecting very fast things like um, fast radio bursts. And then we also have the Murchison Wide Field Array, um, which is a low-frequency telescope, a bit like the telescope, um, the SKA telescope that will be built in Australia. And that's doing great work mapping the low-frequency sky for the first time. Um, so although we've been planning for SKA for a long time, the radio community has by no means been um, been Quiet while it's been doing that. And there have been lots of telescopes and precursors being worked on to lead up to this point when we're about to start construction.
0: So um, I understand there's seven founding members involved in the project, and there's nine observer countries. So can you tell us more about these countries?
1: Yeah, of course. Very happy to. And I'll have to try and make sure that I can remember, I can remember these. So there are first of all three host countries, so the headquarters for the SK Observatory is in the UK um, near Manchester um, at a site called Jodrell Bank which is a famous radio astronomy site and also well worth a visit if any of your visitors, um, if any of your listeners are in the UK. Um, So there's a headquarters in the UK and then the two telescope host countries which are um, Australia and South Africa. But we also have um, partners all around the world, and so um, other founding partners. And let me see if I can remember this. Um, were China, Italy, uh, the Netherlands, and Portugal? I think were the first were the first seven. But we also have members now, people who are, have either joined since we started or are on the verge of joining. Countries like Sweden and France and Canada and Switzerland and India and um, and Spain, and I've, I've no doubt forgotten some, but so it's really a fully international project, and we absolutely need all of those partners because they all bring, you know, specific expertise that they can contribute to building the telescopes.
0: And in building the telescope, I understand the telescope design involved also 12 international uh, engineering organizations, Yeah, that's
1: right. So in order to to design the different parts of the telescope, 12 consortia were established that did things like design the dishes for the South Africa telescope or design the digital signal processing for both telescopes. And so those international consortia were a mix of research organisations and universities, but also industry partners working together to do the design for really this very cutting edge instrument, which is something that nobody has done before. So now we're at the stage of tendering to build the instrument and those partners who were involved in the design, in some cases will also be involved in the building or in some cases are acting as consultants as we go out to industry
0: to tender the contracts to actually do the construction on site. So um, can you tell us a bit about whether there's a significance in the selection of, you know, Southern Hemisphere as the site to host these telescopes? Yeah, look,
1: so a lot of telescopes um, that are built these days are built in the Southern Hemisphere because you get a great view of the Milky Way. So you get the Milky Way is above the horizon for much more time in the Southern Hemisphere than it is in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and so not only in radio astronomy, but also in optical astronomy, um, we see a lot of new telescopes being built in the Southern Hemisphere. Of course, you also need telescopes in the Northern Hemisphere to give you a different view of the sky. But in this case, we're building two telescopes
0: in the Southern Hemisphere. You mentioned about um, a square kilometer of collecting um, collecting area. Uh, to, to give our audience you know, a, a sense of the physical size of the projects, right? So to take the example of the precursors in Australia and also the Pathfinder, where you talk about the Pathfinder, there's uh, 36 uh, dishes, and also the white Whitefield Array that has, I believe, more than 4,000 um, antennas, right? So these will be extended or, to some extent, leverage to build the Um, the 100,000 or more antennas that will form the SKA telescope, right? So I would assume that this involves a significant budget and a huge team of engineers, scientists from institutions across the world. So tell us about the numbers involved, right? The the size, the budget, the engineers, the scientists, and the land area that will host the telescope. Yeah, those
1: are great great questions. Thanks. Um, So... First of all, just to explain what the telescopes will be. So in Australia, we're building a low frequency telescope, which is made of antennas that look a bit like Christmas trees. They're about two metres tall, each of them, and um, made of aluminium. And um, there will be up to 130,000 of these spread across the desert in Western Australia, across 65 kilometres of desert. Um, and the reason we have so many is, that, well, the more antennas that you have, the fainter things that you can see. But also the further apart they are spaced, the more detail you can see. And so we need a lot of ten- antennas and spread in spiral arms across the desert. Um, and then in South Africa, that will be the SKA-MID telescope. So that will be made up of dishes. Um, so like a bit more like a standard radio telescope that you might imagine. Dishes and there'll be, um. 200 dishes spread across 150 kilometers of the desert in South Africa. And the two telescopes will be complementary. So they won't work together in the sense that they work together as one telescope, but what they will do is let us look at different aspects of the universe, and sometimes we will do that at the same time using both telescopes, but astronomers will be able to bid to spend time on both telescopes, looking at the things that they're interested in from these different perspectives. Um, You asked about some of the numbers, yes, so we've got, we've had more than a thousand scientists and engineers working on SKA at institutes across across the world um, and it's it'll be an eight year construction project once we start um, with a budget of about two billion dollars.
0: Right about the frequency range of the low frequency uh, SKA telescope in Australia I believe is um, range from 50 to 350 megahertz in mm. one band. Right. So can you tell us, um, share with our audience the significance of using the low frequency spectrum in the design of the telescope?
1: Yeah, well, that's what actually lets us look back um, in time towards the start of the Big Bang. Um, So, as you know, hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe and hydrogen um, gives off a very distinctive radio wave. Um, But as the universe over time, since the Big Bang has expanded, the wavelength as that radio wave has expanded along with the universe in what we something that we call redshift. Um, So over time, the frequency of that gets lower and lower. And so this is why we're looking at this 50 to 350 megahertz band in particular is in order to try and be able to detect that that area, that era of the cosmic dawn, and be able to see the radio waves that the stars and galaxies were emitting at the time, which have been stretched, have been redshifted as the
0: universe has expanded. That's fascinating. So for our audience who is uh, hearing this incredible telescope and are keen to visit, I understand there's a visitor limitation due to what you call the radio quiet protection. So tell us about this uh, concept and how important it is to isolate the cosmic dawn radio waves from everyday radio waves.
1: So what we are what what we will be trying to detect with the SKA low telescope are very very faint. Um, signals that come from stars and galaxies and more than a million times fainter than the signal that's on your mobile phone. And so we have to go where there are not many people in order to be able to do this because all the facets of modern life, um, not just phones, but your computer and your television and your car, um, all of these drown out the signals that that we're trying to detect from the sky. And so we're, we'll be building the telescope in Australia, in the Murchison region of Western Australia. So it's about 350 kilometres from the nearest town. And in fact, it's an area about the size of the Netherlands, a population of not much more than 100 people. Wow. And so um, it's really what we call radio quiet. And um, so we can pick up these very, very faint signals It used to be in the first days of radio astronomy, you know, radio astronomers, some of the first um, radio astronomy observations were taken from Sydney, in fact. But these days you absolutely can't do radio astronomy in a big city or indeed really anywhere near where there are people and all the um,
0: electronics that come with the people. So you say that the radio waves are incredibly weak. So I assume that by the time they reach the telescope, they are extremely, uh, well, they are even weaker. So you need to amplify, if I understand right, to amplify these signals to turn them into uh, images and other data that could be interpreted by the scientists, by the astronomers. And it's a lot of signals and data, given the sheer size of the number of um, telescopes. So we mentioned the number, about hundred. 130,000, I believe, uh, of the SKA low-frequency telescope in Australia. So tell us about the data processing, both on and off-site, you know, to transport, process, store, distribute all this data to all the end users around the globe. I believe that you um, consider it as a big data challenge. Tell us about this.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, So as you say, the the signals are very faint. And so we have very sensitive, what we call low noise amplifiers on the telescope, which will amplify the signals and then we digitise them. Um, And then they go to very fast digital signal processing using GPUs and, um, and FPGAs and various kind of hybrid technologies. So that that's a real challenge. I mean, we have enormous amounts of data that will flow from the telescope then to be processed by that very high speed, very specialist digital signal processing. So we have around eight terabits a second of data coming from the telescopes. Once they've been through that very first stage of processing using the GPUs and, and CPUs, then um, then we move them up to the supercomputer And that's where we need to do the next stage of processing, which is to take away the signals to calibrate out the response of the antennas and to take away the things that we don't want to see in the sky. So we can see these very faint signals that we're looking for behind that. Um, So it's a really big, big data challenge. We need the supercomputer and the high speed digital signal processing to work 24 seven in order to be able to keep up with the data coming from the telescopes. Um, And then we need to be able to store and distribute the data after it's been processed through the supercomputer so that the astronomers um, can receive the data, reprocess it, and look at it and create science from the data. And so we will have a, a network around the world of what we call regional centers who will have their own computing facilities and their own storage facilities. Um, and that's where the astronomers will engage with the data and they'll be able to get the data that they need and they will and they will process it on those, those computing facilities. So it's a real jour- data journey From when the signal first is amplified by the low noise amplifier, and all the way through to the regional centres and to the astronomers
0: who who will use those directly. I read somewhere that there is about seven hundred petabytes of data that you are expecting that's going to be collected, and that I would assume that's why the high performance computing comes in.
1: Yeah, well, and so that's just the final data as well. I mean, of course, the raw data is much larger than that. But once it's all been processed, um, Mm. then we expect there'll be about 700 petabytes of data a year um, Mm. that will be stored across the regional centers. Um, So, yeah, it's enormous amounts of data. And we are at the stage now in astronomy, um, in radio astronomy, at least, where astronomers can no longer kind of download the data and look at it on their own computers or even on their university clusters. The amounts of data are just too large. And so they have to be using kind of supercomputer centers in order to process um, and store the data.
0: And you also talked about, um, I believe, 8 terabytes of, uh, per second of uh, data. So that is a uh, uh, 100,000 times the average uh, home broadband speed that we have at the moment. That's pretty fast. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's, that's
1: right. And um, we have enough fiber and um, optical fiber to go around the world um, several times uh, as well to connect the telescopes to the digital signal processing. So it really is, it's an enormous big data challenge. I mean, so building the antennas and the, the telescope that you can kind of see is one big challenge. And, you know, it's, it's not to be underestimated, but actually then being able to deal with the data to process it to make, and, and importantly to make sure that we extract the useful information from it and don't get rid of things that might be interesting and so of course you know when you've got such large amounts of data you can't do anything by hand now and things like artificial intelligence and machine learning all come into their own but we have to be very careful when we're training with data sets that we don't throw away interesting things that we just didn't know were there
0: That could be uh, seen as useful to other teams. Right. Okay, so you also talked about data traveling along... Uh, hundreds of kilometres, I believe, long distance of fibre optic cables to all these uh, high-performance computers. So there's quite a lot of infrastructures, and as you pointed out, it's not just building the antennas, it's also building all this infrastructure around to enable the collection and the uh, transport of the data and also the processing. So quite a huge engineering project, and hence um, that's why it involves, I I think you mentioned about more than 1,000 scientists and engineers? Well, that's how many have been involved
1: so far, but there will be more involved now as we start to actually build the telescopes. And I mean, the great thing about this project is because we have this expertise from all over the world, you know, we're able to draw on really the best teams in each country to contribute in their areas of expertise. So for example, um, the software to control the telescopes is being developed in India, the antennas for the low-frequency telescopes are being built in Italy, Um, the high-speed signal processing um, for our telescope is being done in Australia. And so each country can really contribute, you know, where it has its excellence and where its real capability lies so that we can get the best from all over the world.
0: It's a truly international project. Um, so for our listeners, they will be keen to know when can we get the answer, you know, to this uh, really f- interesting question that you kicked off the podcast on, which is, you know, the understanding of the, uh, the cosmic dawn. <laughs> yeah,
1: look, that's a good question. So, I mean, it will take us about eight years to to build the whole telescope and for it to be ready to kind of start taking data as a whole. But well before we get to the end of building it, it will be the largest low-frequency telescope in the world. Um, And so I hope that we will be able to start doing some early data collecting, you know, within, you know, four or five years' time, which will give us some maybe early insights into this. But then even once we've built the whole telescope, then it will take a little while, you know, we need to be able to really understand it And in order to be able to get to this, to these very, very faint signals that we're looking for, for the cosmic dawn. So there'll be a period then of commissioning and of the scientists looking for things. But I'd say, you know, maybe look out to sort of towards the end of the decade.
0: All right. Okay. That's exciting. So, um, yes. So, one last question, if I may, Dr. Pierce. Um, so, earlier we talked about the significance of radio quiet and how there's a visitor limitation to visit this, uh, the sites, right? So, for our audience who are interested to learn more and hopefully visit the site, what are the alternatives available to them?
1: Yeah, so you can't visit the site um, because, as, as we said, you know, it's deliberately built a long way away from people. So we certainly don't um, encourage tourists. But there are ways that you, can, um, that you can get a bit of an insight. Of course, SKA, the SK Observatory has a great website um, and is actually soon to launch a new website. So that will be exciting. Um, but there are also other ways. So there's a virtual reality tour called Under the Milky Way which, in fact, I saw at the weekend at the museum here in Perth, where I am. And that will be travelling around the world. And so there might be an opportunity to see in virtual reality what the site looks like. But there are also great pictures, great pictures on the web. Um, And you can also go to to Perth, where there's an exhibition at the museum here, or to Geraldton, which is the nearest um, town to the site, where there's a great museum, the Geraldton Museum, that also has an exhibition that talks about
0: radio astronomy in the SKA. Right, okay. Well, I will be looking forward to this uh, virtual reality exhibition coming to Singapore, hopefully, sometime soon. So, Dr. Pierce, thank you so much for your time today and to share with us this exciting uh, international project that will revolutionize our understanding of the universe. And um, hopefully, when we catch up next time, we will be able to share the latest uh, understanding of the uh, answer to the big question. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Pierce. Thank you. And I will, um, I'll just round off by
1: um, paying my respects and acknowledging the traditional owners of the site where we built the telescope, the Wajiri Yamaji people, um, without whom we wouldn't be able to to build the telescopes that we're building on the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory.
0: Thank you. Indeed. Thank you very much.